welcome to Very Amusing, your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and I, by the time you've heard this, will have hopefully, hopefully seen Shang-Chi. As a popcorn-fueled human woman, which I say every week at the top of the episode, I'm actually debating booking a whole theater just so I can eat buckets of popcorn unencumbered. That's where we're at, people. Just tossing down my hard-earned cash on theater rentals so I can eat a garbage food. Literally popped corn kernels. The most basic of snack foods. While enjoying a Marvel movie like the good old days in complete peace. Now, this is, of course, a partial pandemic mindset, considering I try to avoid being indoors and unmasked whenever possible, yada, yada, yada. But also, I've kind of always been like this. and I don't know if I've mentioned it before. I don't want to be distracted by someone texting or being on Twitter during the film. It makes me very, very upset. I just want to be all in, just like soaking up a new Marvel film straight into my eyeballs. So much so that I will actually usually forego the entire joy of seeing it with a packed house the night it debuts and go to the first screening the next morning. No joke. For films like Endgame and Infinity War and I think maybe Guardians of the Galaxy 2, I can't remember. I would shut my phone off the night before, so no spoilers. There's no way to get a spoiler to me unless you physically come to my door and yell it in my face. And I would go to an 8 a.m. or 8.30 a.m. screening and not turn my phone back on until I'd seen the entire film. So, I found an 11.30 a.m. showing at a somewhat deserted theater a few days after it debuts, and I'm going to play it by ear. I'm just going to keep checking this seat map, very normal, just to see what goes down and how many people pop up. Because if I can see Shang-Chi for $15 and have the entire theater to myself and refills on popcorn, I'll truly have my cake. Well, I'll truly have my popcorn and eat it, too. And eat plenty of it, too. Anyway, since last week, we've gotten... Loads more news. I woke up this morning uh, never feeling as tired as I have in my entire life. (laughs) It's really taken it on me. Disney World annual passes, Disneyland Christmas time details, all the other stuff that's come out recently, uh, which you can always find online and on my Instagram profile at Carly Wiesel. But because I've really had one of those Groundhog's Day of a COVID weeks lately, you know, typical pandemic life, sun rises, sun sets, it's all the same. I hadn't left my house in like eight days straight. It's not good. But I have been scarfing down television left and right to make the monotony feel different. And I have some recommendations for you. I don't usually use the top of the show for this, but I don't care because my whole social life is the characters I see on screen now. So we're going to talk about it. If you're not watching Only Murders in the Building, you you have to. I am so into it that I watched it all in one day and then rewatched it. I rewatched it all within 24 hours. It's that good. I also fully downed This Way Up at my friend Amy's recommendation. I just watched six episodes in a day while working, like, blew through all of them. I could not stop myself. Amy herself was like, oh, man, I watched it too fast. I watched the whole second season in one sitting. And I'm like, no, I gotta, I gotta savor it. I gotta learn from Amy. No, I sat down and watched all of them at once while I was doing other things and then started watching them again. I'm hooked. Both are great. Uh, Also, both are on Hulu, which I guess is tangentially Disney, so it kind of counts. Anyway, uh, by the time this airs, more episodes of Only Murders in the Building will have dropped, I believe. So eh, just assume that if you're hearing this and new ones are out, I am glued to my iPad absorbing those whenever I'm not working on this. This is obviously top priority. Not a new Steve Martin TV show. Just this. I promise. 
I promise anyone who employs me is listening to this. Anyway, this week we are doing one of my all-time favorite things. We are discussing how things work, baby. If you've listened to our earlier episodes, you know that these tend to yield some very, very interesting details about attractions you know and love. And this episode is no different. I love highlighting the expertise of folks behind the experiences that compose our favorite theme park attractions. We've had Scott Trowbridge teach us how audio animatronics work. Can't believe that happened. Darren Ulmer detailed projection mapping and even learned how a costumed character farts real glitter. We really run the gamut here on Very Amusing, don't we? (laughs) So for our fourth installment in the series, we're diving into a few attractions we've never even talked about on here. Soarin', Impressions de France, Canada Far and Wide, all the large format film attractions at Epcot that will now be graciously brought inside the very amusing podcast universe thanks to one very, very special guest. So let's get into it. Stick around. We'll be back after these words with a truly massive episode. of when you think of Soren, that hidden Mickey while flying between the buttes of Monument Valley, a golf ball headed straight towards your face, the crisp scent of grass? Well, remember that because after today, you'll be thinking of this interview instead. Whether you first fell in love with Soren over California or Soren around the world when the latter version debuted in 2016, there's plenty you've never heard about how these films actually came together. Today, we're not talking about the flying seats, the scents, or the brilliant pre-show video starring Patrick Warburton. No, today these little beauties refer to the film segments themselves. Let it be known now that this is easily going in my top five episodes of all time, because our guest, Marie Colabelli, a senior producer of large format experiential media and installations, does not mess around. Through her recent work as a media producer at Walt Disney Imagineering, she wasn't just involved, but integral to making these updated versions of Soren and Circle Vision happen. Not only that, she came prepared for this interview as the expert, having spoken with her former coworkers prior to this interview. It was an absolute dream to interview someone who is as excited to tell you how Soren was made as you are to learn about it. Let's not forget, Marie is a literal teacher. Not only has she created some of the greatest theme park experiences and large format films across the entirety of Epcot, she also just so happens to be a professor teaching production management at Emerson College's Los Angeles campus. So this is essentially a free course in how to imagineering at the highest level of execution, aka for me, an ideal dream episode. No joke, you will walk away from this never again looking at Storing Around the World in the same way. Or Canada Far and Wide in Circle Vision. Or Impressions de France, because she worked on all of them and more. My goal with this episode was to find out what it takes to create a large format film within Disney parks. And yeah, all of my questions were answered and then some. Because they weren't just answered. They blew me away. I did not know how many people, how many inventions, how many groundbreaking technologies it took just for the media to appear on that 80-foot, 180-degree domed screen at Epcot, DCA, Shanghai, and Tokyo Disney Sea with Soaring Around the World. Because again, we're not even talking about the ride vehicle today, just the film. And the stories behind the film are aplenty. 
As you'll hear in the beginning of this interview, Marie starts by commending the sacred house of Soren Imagineers, paying reverence to those who worked on Soren Over California, the version that came before it. But I really didn't understand until we got further in our discussion that yes, Marie is unbelievably gracious, but really Soren Around the World simply wouldn't have happened without the team they had in place. I knew creating it was difficult. I did not know it was the literal definition of impossible. Again, for the third time, by the end of this conversation, you will never look at this attraction in the same way. And if learning more about how our favorite experiences are made in order to appreciate them in a whole new way is the point of these episodes, consider that mission accomplished this week. So, before I rave any further, I'll let our guest, Marie Colabelli, take it from here. Hi! Hello! Thank you for coming on Very Amusing. I am so excited to talk to you. You are so kind. I am so curious about everything you do. To me, like you you are a Wizard of Oz style person behind a curtain. Like you are you are making things that I truly have no clue how they are made and how they're done. I would love if you could start by introducing yourself and discussing yes. what you do because I, I, you're the master. I don't want to Thank you. misspeak. Thank you so much. The one thing I would love to start this conversation from a place of um, Disney reality is that I feel like I would be remiss if I did not speak to the people who came before me. So when I speak on behalf of the media for Soarin' Around the World, the only reason why we can have this conversation is because of all the people who created who came before me. The Imagineers, the brains, the creativity. Um, and I spoke to a couple people before this conversation. And really, truly, uh, it's a magnificent experience that I was invited into. I did not work on Soarin' California. That was 20 years, believe it or not, before me. And the format was somewhat different. The experience was the same. Ride vehicle was the same. You are, you are kind of very gracefully kind of pushed into the dome to experience California. Um, but the technology changed tremendously. Uh, but the blueprint was already there. Well, to start there, I'd love if you could explain to me how the technology changed. Soaring California was shot on film and Soren around the world used a digital camera. They customized in a very, you know, typical imagineering approach. They invented a camera system. So it wasn't just custom, it was one of a kind. There were no duplicates. There were no existing cameras to date that the technical team said, this is a great example. We would like to create an experience using this. It didn't exist. And so when you go from a film format in, in the large scale to digital, which at that time, 2012, where the camera was being built and it wasn't a camera, it was a system. Their, the resolution was the highest in the industry at the time. It, so the tech team pushed the boundaries. No single camera could capture an image at that time that could fill that dome in the digital realm, right? And so the brilliant minds, um, the R&D team at Imagineering, leading a technical team 
to fabricate this system was to me unbelievable. I had never seen anything like it. No one had ever seen anything like it because it didn't exist before it was created. Uh, how wild was it to work with a product that, it, you know, so many people are using a film format to create things. And here is a one of a kind system that you get to play around with. It was incredible. The one thing I will say, 2012, 2013, digital was strong. Digital was very, very strong. No one, in fact, more people were shooting digitally than they were on film. Film was very expensive. Um, there were quite a few filmmakers who were making their films and television shows still 35, 70 millimeter, but everyone was transitioning if they already hadn't to digital because you could shoot so much more, right? A media card for a digital camera holds volumes and volumes of media versus the magazines of film. And the cameras, the digital cameras allow you to be really creative with the infrastructure of the technology plus the sensors. So you're doing things in the camera already that you would be doing pre-production and post-production and different post houses. So digital was thriving at the time. Multicam systems, that's what was taking a step into, wow, a lot of people haven't done this before. What if you use two cameras, three cameras, five cameras, right? That was the exciting part because everything had to be invented. Oh my gosh. And when when you say that they made their own one of a kind system, does that mean the software? Does that mean multiple cameras pulling together to do one super camera's job? Is it a mix of that? Correct. It's it's a little bit of both. It's it's you know, you use different vendors, you use uh you have your you have your technical goal. The technical goal is I need to fill this dome with not just the most spectacular imagery, and we can talk about that later, about what we want the, the, the guests to feel, but very sophisticated technology. Because I know I could rattle off 20 people who I would hate to be in the room picking the technology apart. Like It has to be so seamless and so beautiful that it doesn't catch anybody's eye. So you have this camera system that has to take a super picture, if you will. Right. And it's not just the camera roll. It's the how the camera can photograph and you invent that camera system. But if you invent the camera system, you have to invent what you do with the media after. So we're inventing post-production that hasn't been done before. So every phase of it is this deep my, I was so tired at night sometimes because I had to think <laughs> so much. And I, And again, this is not solitary. This is, I think, the most important statement. I'll say team a million times on this podcast. The team of knowledge, experience, innovation, courage, big brains in the room. You had to figure it out. You, you had to figure it out somehow. And so that is where it veers quite differently than a, a traditional format it would be rooted down into all of those big brains. So one big brain comes from creative. 
I would like to see in that dome this image. That's wonderful. Everyone would. That is fantastic. <laughs> what a great idea, right? Yeah. But then the larger question is, this is where this is where Imagineering shines, is you take that creative idea and before you make a promise you can't keep, you have to take it to technology. Can the camera photograph that beautifully? We'll bring in the tech team. And then the tech team says it can photograph this location so beautifully. But then the, then you have to bring in physical production and be like, hold on, they might not let us fly over a sacred monument. Let us make sure we are permitted to be a guest of this place. So hold on. And then we say, yes, it's incredible. They will allow us. We had many conversations where governments and countries were not comfortable. And you have to go with that. And then that goes back to the creative drawing board. But then you take physical production and you say, I'll scout and I'll shoot and I'll get this picture for you. But then post-production was like, oh, hold on. Wait a second. We have to invent what we're going to do with all that media that you're going to give us. We have to make sure the pipeline works. So one location, pick any location, Switzerland, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro. We all have to have conversations first to make sure it can work. That's aside from the challenges on the road. That's aside from the challenges of the logistics or tech fails. That's aside. We have to take it tech through. Tech fails? But yeah. Cameras <laughs> go down. Weather. Some people change their minds. They're like, man, you're not going to shoot today. So many things. But if we, we call it interdisciplinary collaboration, no one department could speak on behalf of the whole, which is very normal in media. But we have to all be together at the beginning. We're constantly working together from the get-go, from beginning to end, that that's a big part of the success of, of projects like Soren and Circle Vision. Because you don't want to say this location will be the heartbeat of the film. And they're like, why? It doesn't work. Uh, it's like, oh, we should have asked them to come into the meetings earlier. You don't have time and you have a, there's you can't do that because everyone's again, knowledge and expertise is critical for a project of this size and scope to move forward successfully. I wouldn't want to move forward without getting everybody's okay. I'm like, well, what is what does Max think? What does Linda think? What does Tom think? What does Marianne think? We have to we have to get everybody in here working on this before we even take a step forward. Oh my god. This it's becoming readily apparent to me that I have underappreciated what it took to create this. I go in there and I'm like, mm, I hope I get the section where no legs dangle <laughs> in front of me. And now I'm like, how does this even exist? I always appreciate I appreciate that so much, really and truly, because I don't I don't have the opportunity to have conversations um, of this depth with most people. But what I do find is that when I meet somebody and they are aware that I've worked on Soren and Circle Vision and they're either aware of it or they're a fan, they're like, how? 
did you, how do you even start a project like that? So their appreciation of not even believing how, how t challenging it could potentially be. I appreciate that because if I had a one hour conversation with them, like I am with you, yeah. they wouldn't even believe it. Like, oh. so yeah, it is as challenging as you think it is. But then if I tell you how challenging it actually is, it's, but it's wonderful. Like it's, I think I, I like using that word in its truest definition. Like it is full of wonder. I think that's movie magic. <laughs> I agree. Oh my gosh. So in, in that whole, that whole series of activities, I'm like scarred for you being like, can't get the location, go back to creative. Like, oh my God. You have to. <laughs> Yeah. So if X location, there are a couple different scenarios. It could be the place, the country, the county, the gut. They don't improve it. And that's fine. There were times where we had conversations and they were like, no one's flown a helicopter over this location in 50 years other than the police department or the fire department. And I'm like, so is that hard now? Is that a no-no? Is that hard? <laughs> okay, we're done. Okay. And then other countries were so excited to talk about it. They felt so honored. Yes, please photograph this. So it was wonderful. But going back to your question, it could be a location restriction. It could be, you know, we scout one, one entire year. So we don't just make the movie once, we make it multiple times. You scout the location and it might not photograph the way you envision it on your storyboard. The angle doesn't work. It photographs a lot differently with this camera system because it sees so much more. And you're like, huh, that might not work. In the dome and that big, it's actually, it's taking away from the experience. We might, not, we might have to rethink this location. So when you rethink that new idea starts at the beginning, it can't just drop in. It has to start at the very beginning of the process and go through. So there are a lot of there are a lot of um responsibilities to the final film that are converging at one time all the time yeah it's not like you write the story and then you go out and film it and you turn it in correct yeah what is it like to physically shoot segments of something like storing around the world or a circle vision film like physically what what is that process like to actually take a camera out and do it or see something come to life in a fabrication of a custom camera? I would say like day of you arrived at the location, you're shooting, mm -hmm. what happens next? So physical production, well, again, here's how I'm going to start it. It all comes down to the team, 100%. We, you know, I was prepping for this call and I started to get emotional because this team has been together for so long. We all learn together, live together, <laughs> travel together, and we were able to have this experience, one, because the stars aligned and they are a team of amazing humans. That's the most extraordinary part of the story, but a really good part of the story is that these are some of the most talented people in the world, some of the most talented filmmakers, some of the most talented technicians, some of the most talented producers I have ever 
worked with and known. So when you have a foundation of people who are collectively believing in how extraordinary this project is, synthesis happens. It does. Not synchronicity, synthesis. Like there is a collective energy that made us very strong. We knew how hard this was and everybody got up and they worked their asses off. Everyone worked so hard every single day. No one, com no one complained. And it seems very, I'm not making it up because I couldn't. People complained when the weather wasn't good and people complained about certain delays of like, oh, I just want to get this shot. It's a beautiful day. And we have these restrictions. No one ever said, this is a crappy job. I'm going to go roll onto a feature. <laughs> Never. Everyone was so excited all the time. And that was exciting to be around. It made for a very unique experience. For me personally, I think collectively, I think it would be safe to say, we learned so much from each other. You are great at this. So I'm going to observe and I'm going to take in as much as possible. Someone might say, Marie, you are great at this. I'm going to watch you turn it out. And this is amazing. I've learned so much from you as a producer. And then I go and I look at, you know, a technician. I'm like, wow, what a life life of invention and i'm going to watch you we all learned from each other all the time and there was this great sense of pride but a lovely sense of humility i don't know how to do that could you explain how that even comes together because i don't see what you're seeing and if there was time or maybe at dinner that night they'd be like let me walk you through what do you want to know it was amazing no one was ever feeling like they couldn't ask a question, but I'm talking, we came together and we were a machine. It feels like, it feels like you're describing the Transformers. <laughs> like, yeah. Like you all have different abilities, then you come yes. together and you become one like fully functioning being that made this happen. <laughs> Hi, it's Carly. Yikes, 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 yikes. So I goofed here. I did not mean Transformers cringe. I meant obviously Megazord, the Transformers-like creation formed when all five Power Rangers joined forces to turn their individual dinosaurs into one larger-than-life robotic being. But okay, here's the deal. I didn't say Megazord because first of all, I didn't want you to know how much I know about Power Rangers. And second of all, I thought more people would get a Transformers reference and surely thought if the cars can transform into robot people, then surely they can create one giant robot person. But alas, that does not apparently exist in the Transformers universe. One I only know of from within the Universal Studios attraction. So if you're screaming at your phone or laptop or car windshield right now and how dumb I am, I apologize. And uh, Pink Ranger for life. Really, guys, I love Power Rangers. All right, back to Marie. What was that lifestyle like? Because I assume you were on the road together a lot. Did you go like different times together? Did you try to shoot a bunch of locations at once? So it was like a weird, bizarro road trip. Like, how did that go down? It was a it was many things. So Imagineer Linda Folsom, who worked on California. Right. So she's legacy producer. Um, when I met her, she the scout year was actually already planned. So the the vision was 
anchor and field, right? So one person would anchor and one person would go. There's so much work to do, right? And just to clarify, anchor means like you're at... Someone stays in Glendale and you anchor. And if you're on Kenya time, you're on Kenya time in Glendale. And if you're in France time, you're in France time in Glendale. So anchor and field, right? So that evolved because it evolved for many different reasons. And we actually started switching back and forth. So she took some locations, I took some locations. But I think the it's important to say she, she did scout. I did a couple scouts. I did, yeah. But that was the goal. But again, you go with the evolution of a project and she would have had a challenging environment. And she'll say, okay, this is, I'll take this and we'll hopscotch. You take that one. And then she would anchor and I would go. So when you say you go on a on a scout trip, are you using that footage to choose what final footage you're going to shoot? Or is that, if it's good, you run with it? No, that's a great question. That's a really, really good question. When you scout for large format, and I think the community of large format would join in this conversation and say, you have to, you have to scout. We didn't use that camera system. It wasn't finished. It was still testing during scout year, right? It had to go through so much rigorous testing, right? The risk was too high if you didn't test the way we tested. Yeah, because there's only one and it's like underneath a helicopter, right? Yeah. Yeah, no big deal. Not Right, no stress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So many stories. <laughs> but what's interesting about Soren, people, I have read so many articles, done a lot of press, and I always find it fascinating. They're like, yeah, they use drones to capture some shots. No, we didn't. Never, not once. We never once used a drone. That's not actually true. Every time we shot one frame of media, we were had a camera and was mounted to a helicopter in some way. So for scout year, we didn't, the system was still testing, but we were still in aerial. And when you bring that footage back, it's a single camera system versus multi. So that would never be a final. Gotcha. You use that for creative. You build your, your animatic, if you will. Gotcha. You build a rough of your film. It also gives you the opportunity to change things around. So right. this is what we would like to see. This is what we feel the film is. But then you start getting the shots and you're like, huh, you know what? I think I'd like to see that location there. And you start moving things around with all of your scout footage. And then you start playing with it and you get the tone and it builds out. So that scout year is integral to creative. It, again, to all the families, to creative, to technical, to physical, to post, to integration. But it's never used as a final. It's not the same system. So if we're talking a year-long process for scouting, what is the process like once you're ready to go and you're shooting with this actual, incredible, bizarre camera system? It's another year. So scout takes a lot shorter than shooting. So your scout year, even though I say one year, you could go to a location for four days, go up in the sky twice, get some shots and come home. When you're shooting, you're there for almost two weeks. In each location? Mm -hmm. Barring no problems. How much time would you say you spend, like, up, that is spent up in the helicopter at 
one location? Sure. That's a, that is a great question. It depends on the location. Some places allow increments of time. So you adhere to that request or you adhere to that regulation. Would we then put in a request to be in the sky longer? Absolutely. Um, but again, with digital, depending on a flight path, this is not film. You're not running two or three shots and going down and reloading. In 15 minutes, you can reset your shot multiple times. Do we prefer a longer amount of time in the air? Always, always. Because the taking off and the landing is a lot on people. It's a lot on everyone. Um, so if you can stay in the air, um, and you can back out of how much fuel you have and you can time that, we would always prefer to stay in the air unless there's like a bug on the lens. Anyone who's uttered the words Genie Plus knows firsthand that vacations require time, money, planning, energy. And if you put all that effort into enjoying your trip already, why not extend the highlights of that getaway into your everyday with FrameBridge? Put that vintage Epcot ticket up in your office and give it a little personality. Surprise your kid with their favorite character's autograph immortalized on the wall of their room. Framebridge makes it so easy and affordable to custom frame any photo, park map, or even cocktail napkin from a theme park hotel bar in just minutes. You can mock up exactly what it'll look like on their website before you even spend a dime. Things ship fast and they ship for free, and their colorful custom framing means they'll not only help you plan your gallery wall, but make sure your place looks cooler than the interiors of that mid-century modern home within Spaceship Earth. I love the mementos I framed with Framebridge so much that I rearranged my entire office so I can enjoy them daily. This is not a bit. This is this is true life. They're the backdrop to my podcast Zoom interviews, my Instagram stories, and even the goofy photos we take of Pearl tip-tapping away at my keyboard like she's a miniature employee. Too often, our favorite memories of a vacation are tucked inside our phone or shoved within a drawer. And it thrills me to no end that because of Framebridge, I can finally be surrounded by my memories. Framebridge makes custom framing easy, affordable, and enjoyable. And on top of that, their happiness guarantee ensures that no matter what, you'll wind up with something you love. To get started, head to FrameBridge.com, because your precious travel memories shouldn't have to stay in the past. That's FrameBridge.com. When you're shooting, is the entire team on the copter or is someone down on the bottom looking at footage? I'm trying to compare it to like the way they shoot actual, you know, regular movies. Sure. Mm -hmm. And is it is it the process similar or is it different because of the system? There's a lot of similarities. There are there are tons in the history of filmmaking. Shooting from a helicopter has been around for a very, very long time. Right. But if you take it into the digital realm, the team is very similar. So we have a DIT and that's our digital imaging technician. And we have a file manager. And we also have video playback. So the beauty of digital is that helicopter lands, you pull those media cards, and you basically go to Video Village, we call it playback Oh, now. yeah. So it's still, yeah. even though it is this whole unique system, it's still rooted in that same process. 
it's rooted in the same process, but our playback does not look, no. <laughs> does not look the same. Oh no, do you have like a blow up dome? <laughs> it's it's again, it's a very sophisticated playback system. We did. We had a quarter scale dome back in Glendale. Oh, you wait, you have like a you have like a, a mini dome that you yeah. tested it out on? Yeah. Oh, there's baby Soren? There's baby dome. <laughs> yes, there's baby Soren. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's kind of wonderful, yeah. That's uh, that's incredible, which I guess uh, it takes me to what I'm wondering about the editing process, because mm -hmm. I know you touched on it a few moments ago that that was also completely unique to creating this, that sure. all the post-production. What Can you elaborate on what exactly was different about it? The difference in this editing process, first and foremost, was it was a pipeline that had to be invented because this is not one camera, it's multiple cameras. And the technology R&D plus the team who built the system have to work with the visual effects and post supervision teams to create an algorithm to take the multiple cameras, right? It's one thing that they talk to each other when they're in flight filming, but there, there's a mathematical equation that has to be created to blend all of these images together to create one super image, right? That's not an everyday post. So you have visual effects, you have your, your, um, your pipeline, and, and you have editorial. And certain, again, the math applies to all shots. All shots are different. So the math manually sometimes have to, has to change per shot, which elongates that process because you won't know until you have all the media in there. I I gotta say it's it's maybe most interesting to me that what it took to create something like Soaring Around the World were was all of these cameras working in tandem together and all of these people working in the exact same way. Like it really required multiple cameras and multiple people to operate as one single hive mind to get it done. Hive mind is such a great way to say it. We had such good fortune. So R&D Imagineering is an extraordinary department, right? You're talking about amazing mathematicians. Um, but in the incubation, uh, a man named Max Penner, who is a DP, is also a technician. So he didn't, he built the camera system and he shot the film. That is a beautiful thing because if anything malfunctioned on the road, there he was. We didn't have to call back to anywhere and be like, Houston, <laughs> he was there. And the team that he built around himself, which became our camera team, they would fall in in the same knowledge and they knew how to support him in any realm of challenge. It was extraordinary. I'm telling you, this team, I'd like to rattle off all their names. <laughs> like extraordinary. Oh my yes. gosh. I I guess I foolishly always thought the most difficult part would be actually getting the shot and just to know everything else that goes into it and mm -hmm. how many factors there are to getting one single shot in one single location mm -hmm. is is wild. And the uh, experience is just over four minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, I believe you said that this process began in 2012. Was so again, I have to speak to the people who came before me. Yeah. Linda Folsom, all Imagineers, Linda Folsom, David Katzman, Tom Fitzgerald, Marianne McLean, Scott Watson, all came before me and have since made a huge impact on the large format community, without a doubt. Um, they were all they all participated in the original. Again, I know people listening to this, there were so many more people who contributed to the success of Soarin' California. I am speaking on behalf of the media department. Just right. right? Yeah. So many wonderful people. The idea how the the ride system came to be and the technology. I understand yes. that. Right. I know. Yeah. Like you're going to have people coming at you like, "Why didn't you say this?" <laughs> oh no, no. You you like uh, team is the word of the day. I'd love to talk about circle vision. Yeah. So how does that process change things compared to the one we just discussed for Sorner on the World? It's very similar. It, you know, you take a, you take a legacy project. So these are this is the beauty of I had the opportunity to step into something that existed already. So there's history, there's legacy, there's um, experience, right? So that's where they were both similar. Soar in California existed, Circle Vision existed, you know, as Americas in Tomorrowland and when Disneyland opened. For me, when I was invited to update and make new films for Epcot, I couldn't believe that I was going to be creating with an extraordinary team an interpretation of an original idea that came from Walt Disney and Abba Iwerks. Extraordinary. So when you think about the original film, the original idea, 11 35 mil cameras, the idea that they wanted to push guest experience when it came to not just media consumption. I want to go see that. I want to go see that. They were talking about how can we give someone an experience in a place that they haven't been before that would be inspiring and moving and extraordinary to all of the senses. Like we have been to we do Soren. We do different dome experiences. We do Mach Mini 360s. You go to a, a museum, a festival. They're popping up everywhere, right? But the idea that my direct lineage, my work lineage goes back to these two men and their idea was amazing to me. Is there pressure associated with that too? I felt it. <laughs> I felt it. You know, the films, the films are, I say legacy a lot, but the films are legacy pieces. And I have to say, um, for these films to continue to live at Epcot, uh, Tom Fitzgerald, who has been with the company for a very, very long time, you'll see him in the Imagineering story and behind the attraction. He fights hard. He loves the importance and the beauty and the meaning of these projects. And I connected to that. I felt it was so important as well and an honor to make these films. And then the next step was digitize it. You're like, wow, here we go again. But this was great. So just like with the Soren rig, you're going to digitize to make the experience 
at the most sophisticated level of technology, we did it again. We digitized a later iteration of their system. So they started with 11. And then I think it was of iWorks. It was like, I have to, there has to be something that can push this even further. And they came to the nine, the nine cameras in the round. That system still exists and it's built in the camera shop. And we look at it all the time. It's unbelievable. Whoa, that's just there? You can see it? Yep. Nine cameras, 500 pounds. And it's it's a piece of art. It's a piece of history. It's very special. But again, same tech team came together. Um, So you have to think about it this way. So we shot Canada. Um, We're looking at five years later, five, six years later, 14. Yeah, that alone technology had completely changed and advanced so quickly. So that gave us an opportunity to build the system. And what was so exciting, so it was like 935 mils, 500 pounds too. And this is everything that you see on, you know, D23 in the press releases, seven cameras, 80 pounds. What that means for us is how much more we can shoot. I mean, the, my crew has backpacks heavier than that camera system that they trudge around the world with. Like, you know what you can do with that? Things that were unimaginable. Try this. Okay, try that. Push it. Push it. And we did. We got shots in Canada that were unbelievable. Gosh. And is that is that a testament to, to go back to what you said, like the stats being listed in the press release? That's why I love interviews like this, because we read that and we're like, got it. But like, there's never an opportunity to dive deeper. Yeah. So were those shots, were you able to capture them just because you could shoot more, you could shoot in a better way? Like what, what was the exact reason for why you could get those? Both both we had many 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 reasons so the first thing you do when you approach a film like that that's not an all-new film that's an update is you surround yourself with consultants what does this film mean to you we're going to ask canada (laughs) i would travel around and i would meet other filmmakers i would meet farmers teachers a chef park rangers what does this film mean to you you tell us wait (laughs) wait you would you would go to Canada and like yes. go around and ask people about the, the yes. film? But we had to. I'm from Philadelphia. I have no right making a film about Canada. Canadians have to help me make a film about Canada. So I surround myself with Canadian consultants, artists. It was a Canadian musician, Canadian writers. It has to be that way. I never thought about it, but that, I mean, it makes the most sense. Like that's mm-hmm. what you're doing. It, like you need to... You need to pay homage to this place, but just the idea of you being like, got to talk to a farmer is so, that's, for that being one of your responsibilities among all of this other stuff is just wild. But you have to think about who is going to approach me when they see that film. Who is going to approach someone who works at Epcot? Why did you get that shot? Well, the theme of the Canada Circle Vision film became a love letter to the country. And we listened. This place, I grew up going to this place in in this territory. I was like, we don't have that in the film. Let's consider this, right? So we started talking. You, I mean, again, I could tell you what I think should be shot, but that's like someone coming into my hometown and be like, we're shooting this, this, and this, because we like it. I'm like, well, where are you from? Talk to a native. 
<laughs> it's so funny because that's like every travel TV show that's ever existed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, we like this restaurant. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Is there anyone you spoke with who who recommended a location that you never would have expected? And once you saw, you were like, this is perfect. I don't think so. I don't think so. We we had a lot of suggestions and the, the pain was, so there were some locations, as you know, Canada is an extraordinary, large, beautiful country. When we would map out physical production, there were some locations that were we desired so deeply to go and film, but it would take us a, actually take a week to get there. And I was like, oh, oh, how am I going to explain this? We have to cut the shot, <laughs> right? But um, no, there was nothing. There was no location that was surprising because it came with so much. It came with memory, it came with meaning, it came with culture, it came with the future, it came with a voice. And that to me was like, I, I wanna I wanna go everywhere. Oh my God, this is just beyond fascinating. Uh, is there any other element of what you do that we haven't discussed that you think people experiencing these attractions would never know as part of the process? You know, we touched on this, slightly, I think that there is a real understanding that what they experience is special. And to create that experience, you have to kind of unpack all of this mystery and question behind it. And we can do, we've done a lot of behind the scenes for Soren. You can like, it's been fun. But I, what I think might surprise people would be that whatever you think it is, which is on par, it's probably exponentially larger within the execution part of it. Yeah, that's what it sounds like because I knew it took a it took a lot to to actually make these things technology wise and equipment wise. But I never would have expected the team element of it oh, to yeah. also be so imperative to getting something like this done. Like not just making it good, just creating it in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, I I had mentioned in a moments ago, like there could be a shot that we think is the heartbeat of the film. The heartbeat of the film is the team. That's what it is. And there are times where I see Soren or I see Circle Vision and... I see everyone. I see every single person and what they did in every shot. It's incredible. It's really emotional as a filmmaker to know that you are kind of locking arms with other women and other men, of course, the core, a real core team. And you, I know what went into this achievement. And when I see there are certain shots where I can't not be emotional because I knew what was happening behind the scenes. I knew what was happening in Glendale. I know what was happening in the country at the time. I mean, don't forget, we were coming up. We were in a very interesting place in 2018. And traveling internationally, you know, you have very specific experiences. And so much is happening all at once. But everyone, when you have that collective that people believe in the 
final experience is incredible. Is there any one shot you look at in particular where you're like, I'm, it just fills you with pride? Uh, with pride? Or just one, one that, is there any single shot or single location within that film that makes all of the feelings you just mentioned arise? You know, shots surprise you. Some shots are your favorite on location, and then some shots are your favorite in the cut. Um, some shots are linked to an emotional moment. Um, that's 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 a tough one to to say between Soren and Circle Vision. I the, the <laughs> I mentioned I talked to Alexandra Kennedy, who's a producer Imagineer. I called her and I was like, "I'm talking about you on this podcast." <laughs> <laughs> The Whistler shot in Canada, Circle Vision, I don't know if you've seen it. It is, the the helicopter is coming around. You're seeing the mountain. And all of a sudden you see another helicopter come into the shot and drop seven skiers and they go down the mountain. That is not planned. That None of that. That was, she, the story that I told her I was going to tell. Whistler, because of weather, as you can imagine, in the winter, <laughs> is a challenge. She ran from a storm. So when I say she was, she was so anchor field. So I was anchoring and she was field for this shot, right? A little different than Soren, which was Linda Folsom. When I say she ran from a storm, I mean, people are in a helicopter, crew is on the ground, and you have this custom equipment. And she was like, what ran from a storm she was like we're chasing people on the ground she was like we're running we're running we're running they were like we're gonna circle back in the sky and she was like we're turning it back around i was like are you running into the storm right now she's like we're going back i was like wait are you running or chasing what's what's happening and she literally she was like this was the adrenaline of that day the people came out of the helicopter seasoned filmmakers tip top max banner steve gray scott howell tip Top. They were like biggest film day of my life. <laughs> biggest. Now safety first, always. Safety initiative leads everything. I'll ground a helicopter in one second and I don't care who complains. I don't care who comes at me. I don't care who is upset. Stand down. Safety first. They were in the air. So they were going from a storm and they circled back around it and they just so happened to pick up a shot where people hopped out of a helicopter and they skied down the slope. It was unbelievable. I've never, uh, never in my professional life, and apparently all of the others as well, you can't make that up. You can be prepared as much as possible, and you have to be prepared. Prep is everything. So you can look into the face of challenges on location to pull something like that off. And it wasn't pulled off. It was executed beautifully. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> I, I know. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was incredible. I really feel like I learned so much. I'm so grateful for you to ask these questions. I feel so kind of honored to share and kind of share the specialness of something like this. Um, people are very, very kind when it comes to Soren and, and Circle Vision. And I appreciate that so much. Well, they're they're all incredible, and I I guess it's just that many of us don't know what it takes for them to be that level of great. So it's it's wonderful to know truly how much work went into these experiences yes. that we enjoy in the parks. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Such amazing questions. Thank you for your enthusiasm and, and inviting me here. I can't make a helicopter film, but I can put a few words together. Listen. <laughs> it's some, we all have our it, skills. We all have our strengths. Hi, Carly. Love the podcast. You're so awesome. Um, I have a question about Oogie Boogie. So if Oogie Boogie Bash is happening um, during the stay that I'm thinking about going to Disney, should I go a day that it's not happening or does it really affect the park's population-wise? Thanks. Ooh, great question. So because Oogie Boogie Bash, the ticketed Halloween party at Disney California Adventure, doesn't begin until tomorrow, September 9th, I won't really know until we have a few days in the can and can kind of track crowd patterns. Crowd patterns are really wonky right now, by the way, especially because the annual pass holder system just came back online with Disneyland's Magic Key Passes. So it's really unclear if you'll have a lot of people in the park at Disneyland the day of the party before they move over to Oogie Boogie or not. We've never had this few annual pass holders in recent history, so I'm hesitant to refer to previous busy fall crowd patterns because things are so extremely different. So instead, to answer your question, I'm just going to go off timing and what I know is fact. Oogie Boogie Bash guests can enter Disney California Adventure at 3 p.m. on the day of the party. And on those days, California Adventure closes to day guests at 6 p.m. On standard days throughout the fall, DCA will remain open till 10 p.m. So you get less time in the park, can't really eat dinner in the park, can't see the sunset, can't do Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout at night, things like that, regardless of when you actually head out. There is not currently nighttime entertainment at DCA either, so you're really not missing anything on that end, just purely not getting the most bang for your buck when it comes to paying for ticket admission. I'm not sure what type of admission you have, so if you are park hopping, I'd recommend starting at DCA and then heading over to Disneyland at 1 p.m. when you're able to. Again, I'm not sure what crowd flow will be like since everything is so irregular right now, given that the Magic Key Annual Pass program is revving up from zero and not maxing out as it previously was. But the only other thing I'd flag is SoCal resident tickets. These specially priced tickets, which were introduced prior to the return of the pass holder system, expire September 30. And I'm just going to guess the last few days of September, particularly the last weekend on the 25th and 26th, are going to be busier because of that. So just keep that in mind, regardless of how many days you're visiting for and when you're planning to go to DCA when there is also an Oogie Boogie Bash party night. I hope that helps. And regardless of what happens, I wish you loads of festive fun. Hi, Carly. My name is Candace. I'm calling you from Folsom, California, although I used to live in the Napa Valley. And I'm calling to see if you've ever heard of the Sharpstein Museum in Calistoga, which is in Napa Valley. And it was founded by retired Disney animator Ben Sharpstein and his wife. And the museum is tiny and it's cute and it has a lot of Calistoga history, but it also has a lot of really cool Disney artifacts um, his old writing desk from being at Disney for 30 years. It has an Oscar. It has little scribbles and drawings and Fantasia stuff. So I lived there for six years and didn't even know about this until a couple years ago. It's kind of a quiet, cute little secret. And I was just curious if you knew about it or any of the cool things inside. That's all. Podcast is awesome. I love it a lot. Keep doing what you're doing. Bye. 
Oh my gosh. Now this, people, this is why we have a 24-hour phone line for gems like this. Thank you so much for telling me about the Sharpstein Museum of Calistoga History, which is officially on my to-do list now. As you know, I am not a California native, so my knowledge of the state and truly my own city, if we're being real here, is not as vast as it could be, especially when it comes to Napa Valley, considering I basically hate wine. I mean, I'll drink it, but it's it's not my favorite. I'd much prefer a juice box. <laughs> Sad but true. Uh, But I'm especially thankful because there is no indication on this museum's website that there would be hidden Disney gems inside of it. Not on the homepage, not very clearly listed on the exhibitions, uh, nothing. I found a good description of what they've got on Disney History 101, which I'll link to in the show notes for anyone who is curious to plan a trip. But otherwise, what a wild, unexpected discovery that I am so grateful you shared with all of us. Thank you so much. That's our show! Thank you all for listening, and thank you so much to Marie Colabelli, producer of Experiential Media, for teaching us all about what she does so well. You can rate, review, and follow or subscribe to Very Musing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your pods. I want to thank J7MKJJK and Patro for your recent reviews. Again, if you would be so kind as to give us the old five-star rating or plunk out a few words. My under-caffeinated self would really appreciate it. Um, If you're just stumped on what to say, suggestions include Shrek made me do it, I'm only here for plastic cheese, tag yourself, I'm the extremely loud hello that kicks off every episode, this podcast smells as good as the Taj Mahal scene and soaring around the world, etc, etc. Anything works, truly anything works. And I thank you so much in advance for your time and your work. It's like a fun little bulletin board that I get to read. And hopefully if there's nice things on there, makes my day. If there's mean things, it's very annoying. So please drown off the mean voices. Thank you so much. There's very few. Don't worry. I only get like two a year, but still annoying whenever it happens. Anyway, give me a -a ring-a-ding anytime over at 747 Churros. I'm happy to answer your questions, provide opinions. You can share your sentiments. I'll listen to your park complaints. Whatever. I'm here for you. Follow me on social media at Carly Wiesel on Twitter and Instagram or join my Facebook group, The Fomaly, for a bunch of theme park Starbucks-y fun. That sounds sounds like there wouldn't be much going on in the group <laughs> if I put it that way, but it's a great time all the time and I, I love spending my time there. Very Amusing is edited assiduously by Jeff Fox. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon. Hey, honey, it's mom. I just wanted to tell you I'm so happy you're back. I'm employed again. (laughs) I love your enthusiasm. And I got to tell you, every Wednesday when you're on, very amusing. And I get to hear your bubbly, cheerful voice. It makes my day. So Wednesdays are now my favorite day of the week. So I didn't know much about a luau, but I love listening to this podcast. By the way, happy 10-year anniversary, Alani. So Nate and and Jeanette really, really, really sounded great. And they loved their job, which is so nice to have a job that you love. But the part that got me the most is the luau. Okay. I've never been to a luau, but, honey, next time you go, please, please, please take me. I'm going with you. Oh, they had me a teriyaki chicken, pulled pork, prime rib. 
I didn't even wait to hear the desserts. I was so excited. And then it came in, and it's beautiful there. Yes, I do want to go with you next time. But another great podcast. That's for another time. I loved it. It was great. Welcome back. I'm so happy to hear your voice. I love you. Bye, honey.